0: Doing today, Brian. It is. Well, we're recording this on March nineteenth. Um, day, whatever spread. of the quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> joke, but That's... no, all joking aside, we, we had uh, Ravi join us today, and we had we had some great, um, very technological conversation this time around.
1: We did. You know, Ravi Krishnan is someone that I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years and, you know, our paths have continued to intersect. Uh, I just think he's a brilliant guy and, you know, he uh, he can dive into a lot of different domains uh, talking about things, you know, really at a, a pretty high level when it comes to. Um, strategic thought leadership around, you know, how technology can advance uh, not only specific businesses, but entire industries. And we got to touch on uh, quite a bit of that today. Um, He's also quite a bit of a data nerd, but uh, we didn't get into that so much, although there are uh, a couple of golden nuggets about, you know, ultimately the data is still, you know, part of what can harness and drive your business forward as a differentiator.
0: No, I got it. I think that's a good lead-in, Brian, and we'll just uh, let the folks sit back and uh, enjoy the show.
1: Awesome. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado.
0: And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C
1: and we're thrilled today to have with us a special guest, Ravi Krishnan, who has a long-term background in technology and digital practices at both the senior executive and C-level for a variety of organizations. Ravi, welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much, Brian. Good afternoon to you and to Nick as well. I know that uh, we are living in times of extreme uncertainty. So for us to still get some time to kind of think uh, beyond the current issues and participate in something like this is uh, truly welcome, truly exhilarating. So thank you so much for having me on.
0: No,
1: thank you for coming. We appreciate it. Absolutely and uh and so here we are yes on the the first day of spring 2020 uh doing this recording and uh it is a time of uncertainty and uh and and remote work so uh thank goodness for uh all of the different uh digital capabilities that uh, enable that to be possible for uh for folks like ourselves and um you know it's it's one of those challenges i think that uh um, there are a lot of folks in the service industry right now who have been disrupted that, uh, don't really have a work from home option. So, um,
2: True. You know, on that point, if I may just had a quick anecdote that I was just remembering yesterday, uh, at, uh, one of my previous employers who will be left unnamed, there was a huge, uh, Conflict in regards to whether or not to have a formal work from home policy or a telecommute policy, and the the folks that were the detractors uh, were quite certain and assertive that uh, you don't get the same same level of productivity if you are kind of not working in the office. And I always used to think the only way to allay allay those fears and answer those uh, uh, arguments would be if we were to run a simulated uh, kind of disaster. Scenario. I mean, as is typically the case. Well, what we have right now is a true global simulation of uh, BCP in action. And uh, uh, for what it's worth, the consolation here is with the power of technology, with the potency of uh, true global internet working, I think for anyone that feels that uh, you cannot telecommute or you cannot work from home effectively, I think we've proved a bunch of people wrong. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a very great point and i'll, I'll just add on to that you know even in the office if you're worried about people wasting time people will find ways to waste time if they want to waste time they don't exactly. need to be at home to do that <laughs> that's just my two cents exactly. on things
1: <laughs> uh, it's, it's a topic that nick and i have talked about a lot it's uh you know it's something that it's it's interesting to see the the types of resistance and uh the figures behind the resistance um you know uh meaning the 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 various types of roles that seem to have the most pushback in an organization uh, claiming that remote work is not something that is going to be uh, equally as effective. You know, there, there are some other, uh, you know, corollaries to it that I know Nick and I have talked about where, you know, employee satisfaction is one of those things that um, can actually contribute to better productivity um, because folks have the flexibility to get work done Uh, I I know that I've always, you know, worked with leaders that I respect who, you know, unequivocally say, you know, look, I don't really care when you do the work that I need you to do as long as the work gets done and gets done on time and uh, gets done effectively. So, um, to me, that corollary just carries over into a a remote workforce world.
2: You know, a hundred percent. In fact, uh, in some ways, it almost uh, feels... uh like such a common sense uh, point, right? I mean, there's always a finish line that that we all respect and we have to abide by. But within the confines of uh, the distance between the starting point and the finish line, I think we are all adults. We are all professional and kind of well-equipped to handle the modus in the best way we can as long as we are reaching the point at the time of the finish line. So that's why I sometimes just completely... uh, fail or I am com- com- confounded by the lack of understanding, you know, in regards to uh, the need for certain people to micromanage and kind of making things more difficult than they need to be.
0: That's true. What do you mean? Micromanagement isn't a good managing technique? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I think when you have to append the term micromanagement, that's where you're already experiencing a deficiency in leadership.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Totally
1: agree with you there. Well, Ravi, I know that you've had a, a very broad background uh, working in information technology and uh, digital practice areas for a long time. I've, I've known you to be someone immersed in uh, data analytics practices before terms like big data were uh, <laughs> mainstream buzz terms. Uh, and, you know, now you continue to extend that out into more of a digital platform domain. I know that's part of... Uh, what had uh, inspired us both to say hey let's let's get uh, on the program and and have a discussion around this. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what your own personal journey is and what the background is that you have that has kind of brought you along this path.
2: Yeah absolutely Brian thank you so much. So in regards to my experience, you know, I am exact the exact antithesis for anyone that says that. Right, you know, right since the time I started working, this is what I wanted to do. In fact, my, you know, my in that sense, my resume or my professional background has been a series of, uh, uh, I would say, mishaps slash unintended. Uh, falling into situations that ended up uh, proving to be quite beneficial Uh, and the case in point to that is that you know again uh, typical of a lot of us who uh, you know who migrate from India I happen to be someone who uh, academically majored in the area of information systems, or at least was compelled to do so uh, you know, from a peer pressure perspective, but never wanted to pursue engineering or computer science as a, as a professional vocation. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to get into mass communications and do broadcasting. Uh, realized pretty soon upon uh, you know, getting to the United States and pursuing a master's in that area, uh, that professionally, I need to be slightly more materialistic in my aspirations, and uh, so pretty soon that you know that desire uh, uh, reached its uh, expiration point, and uh, I figured that the next best thing, if I'm not in journalism or if I'm not kind of in the media circus, uh, what I have really enjoyed about it is the mar- media uh, is the market research or the data analysis aspect of it. So that's what led me to get into management consulting. So I started off with uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers. Also worked with a couple of other more boutique consulting firms, uh, you know, as a business strategy consultant. And towards the latter part of the 90s, actually towards the end of the 90s, uh, you know, all business strategy, any kind of uh, business modeling ended up uh, fulcruming. Pardon the word into digital, into technology. And, you know, you you couldn't talk about business strategy without talking about e-commerce and e-business and B two C and B two B. So I realized that if I were to again continue being successful or continue being useful, I also needed to go back to my technology roots and become kind of a technology consultant or a technology uh, quote unquote advisor. And that's what I did. And since then, oh, after spending I would say about seven years in consulting moved to the corporate side, was with GE Insurance for some time, mm-hmm. uh, then was uh, uh, you know lucky enough to be part of, uh, I call the cross hybrid wave between, uh, uh, you know, between the traditional IT outsourcing and the new age outsourcing, which talked a lot more about business consulting and strategic architecture. So I was part of a company called Cognizant, which obviously has become huge today. Uh, I was with them during their nascent stages. Uh, and then in the last decade or so, Brian, as you know, I was with Kaiser in their, uh, uh, on their payer side and have spent a significant amount of time since then on an area with an insurance that I had never, ever worked before or served. And that was in the insurance brokerage sector. So was with Woodruff Sawyer uh, for uh, seven years. What that taught me is quite seminal in the sense that in a way, That whole experience and what I'm doing right now uh, as the next uh, juncture in my career, uh, it feels like the end state of everything that I had learned thus far, which is about business strategy, technology, and how that affects your strategy in the future, honing in on the insurance as the vertical sector, and then realizing that the brokerage is where you are kind of having the confluence of all of these things you are not talking about a specific industry because you could be a brokerage in financial services or healthcare investments, even in like semiconductors or electricity and utilities, you know, that the model remains the same. The key is to harvest the data that gets transferred between party A and party B and you happen to be the intermediary that is tran- allowing the transaction. You are the bridge. And so to me, that's when it dawned on me in the last seven, eight years have been fantastic in understanding that, As a result, the brokerage sector is not in the fear of getting disintermediated. It probably holds the keys to how the future of our industry is going to look like. And that's been one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I've found it, as I said earlier, seminal and something that I want to continue to hone in on, continue to hopefully create some transformational solutions which disrupt this market in the future, because I feel that's where I think uh, uh, the real disruption is going to happen over the next five to 10 years. So I know there was a little bit of a rambling, uh, but uh, that's what basically has been uh, the nuts and bolts of my career thus far. Oh,
1: that's a fantastic background. I really appreciate you sharing all that. And uh, you know, and welcome to coming full circle and being back on the broadcast side of where your uh, <laughs> career trajectory originally uh, was intended to take you.
2: And you know what? I didn't even think about it, but you're absolutely right. And you know, it goes back to that old adage, right, where they say that if you're destined for it, you will eventually get there. And I think uh, this happens to be a perfect case in point
0: for that. Hey, you know, I I got into technology because I walked into a room, and uh, I'm not even joking. <laughs> I had finished my associate's degree, and I'd worked in restaurants like long before I worked. At, uh, you know, in technology, worked there for a number of years, and I finished my AA. Then went to a state school, and they're like, "Well, you got to pick a major." And this this guy walked by by me as I was standing up in front of this table. He's like, "You don't have a major declared. Come with me." And then there I am. I went up in MIS degree. <laughs> so wow, we we all find the that's random. That's terrific. Tasks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's great. Well, and I'll, I'll just share that similarly, uh, you know, my intent was to uh, pursue a career in filmmaking and screenwriting, uh, oh, which wow. is what my, my undergraduate work is in, uh, as well as radio broadcast and, uh, and a lot of journalism work. So all my early uh, jobs were based around uh, traditional broadcast media forms and Um, You know, part of what uh, just because of my age and the timing and the evolution of technology, um, you know, a lot of those systems that had previously been analog based systems were suddenly becoming more digital. And so now you saw interoperability uh, between, you know, things like, uh, you know, music platforms and, you know, Avid video systems and, you know, everything started uh, transitioning into more and more of uh, this approach that was very digital platform oriented. And so, you know, just by the nature of doing creative work using technology, of course, you had to become somewhat of a technologist through the process. And pretty soon I found myself being one of the people who actually had the most computer experience in the yes. job setting that I was in uh, and, you know, understanding sort of the challenges behind it. And, you know, that starts driving you more and more into, okay, you understand how these things need to work together. You understand the work behind it. You understand the type of human resources that need to be put into place. You must be a technology uh, leader, right? So um, <laughs> suddenly you find yourself sort of, you know, in in that type of role. And, and so uh, I think it's interesting that for all three of us, uh, we've had sort of this accidental approach into uh, the technology field.
2: Yes, Anna, that's that's uh, quite fantastic, and in fact, I see that trend only uh, getting more and more commonplace. Because something that you know we can hold resp- hold Apple and Amazon responsible for is this increased uh, consumerization of technology. Right, it it's not an esoteric subject anymore. Uh, I can say it with uh, absolutely no shame and 100% confidence that my 14-year-old and 12-year-old are better technologists than I am, you know, just because of the fact that you know, they have used and consumed and experienced apps on their phone to such an extent that they know what works and what doesn't, so they can create better. And that's going to be the rule of the game moving forward, where technology is not going to be a career or an option. It's probably something that is going to be part and parcel of every profession.
1: I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I think for someone, my, my 11 year old son's age, uh, you know, his view of what computer programming requires is, you know, code uh, is uh, put together like pieces of puzzles right uh you know kind of kind of uh kind of that whole uh ideo sort of approach you know that uh you know now you can compartmentalize those concepts so um you know from from someone who at a young age is learning programming concepts um you're you're only ever going to have you know uh methods and variables that appear in certain shapes that can then be sequenced uh together so that you know that your code will actually execute (laughs) (laughs)
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) Well, this this brings us, I think, you know, to sort of the the larger topic at hand that I know we were interested in exploring just around digital platforms in general. And, you know, what that is uh, ultimately starting to evoke across all industries. So, Ravi, I like how you, you kind of tied the model of the broker to, you know, many different industry types. And I'd like you to speak a little bit more about how you really envision that as sort of a... Uh, a model that can eventuate into, you know, future-proofing where a lot of industries are going. But if we can also speak to a degree around what that kind of digital platform architecture allows, Uh, I know that, you know, previously you and I had talked a bit about uh, the idea of, uh, you know, really you've got an open architecture uh, that welcomes in, Uh, All of these different ancillary players who may have a really killer utility, but that's just kind of the one thing that they do and do really well. Um, But having having an architecture that then allows them to come be part of a larger ecosystem. uh, I know from my perspective, that's part of what I find most exciting about um, the promise of digital platforms.
2: Yeah, agree 100% with you, Brian, in fact, uh, to that point, and you know, that's why I said earlier that uh, my journey has been kind of a series of uh, uh, incidental mishaps or falling into the right place. And in that sense, I can say it with full uh, uh, gratitude that being in the insurance uh, slash healthcare sectors right now uh, is the holy grail because of the volume of data that gets transacted inside the engines of this overall industry. Um, and that's why I also feel it is more and more incumbent upon all of us, you know, anyone that has anything to do with technology or thought and creativity and innovation in these industries to truly think about how we can transform and go beyond traditional boundaries and disrupt the model. Disrupting it not just in how we define digital insurance. So it's no more or it's not just about what is the next agency management system that if I am a broker, I need to invest in? That to me is not moving along the trajectory of digital insurance. To me, the, que- the better question would be, am I a company that actually needs an agency management system? Instead, can I have a platform which has a menu of applications, each one of which can be modularized to perform certain functions, which are essential to me as a broker rather than to the broker sector overall, And as a result, I'm piecing together an agency management system without having to invest the capital that is required to buy one. I mean, that's just just one, I guess, thought journey or uh, user journey that I can think of. Similarly, from the perspective of someone who claims or someone who says that they are a digital insurance provider, like, you know, a software company or a technology off the shelf product provider. To me, the question there no longer is if you are a creative architect, or if you're an innovator, the question is no longer that in the next version, I will have X, Y, and Z enhancements or A, B, and C upgrades. To me, the question that we need to really ask is as a company, can I come up, with something in the market that blows the socks off the consumer, whether that consumer is an insured, an insurer, or a broker, will they see something that they've never seen before? As an example, and I know we spoke about this earlier, a big push in the market right now from a provider, from a technology provider's perspective, is this whole uh, phenomenon of uh, no-code and no co- and low-code platforms. That, to me, has legs. I mean, you know, we know about uh, companies like Uncork or self-plug uh, company called Innovio that I've been a part of where the idea being proposed here is that to the technology team or to the um, strategic leadership team at brokers and insurers, let's not worry about having to code a certain uh, lines number of lines of code in order to get some solutions. Accelerators, frameworks, pluggable solutions are all part of our platform. What you do is drag and drop what you need and all of a sudden by law within 15 minutes you have your agency management system your customer engagement platform whatever you're looking for so again moving away from a monolithic choice you know we are no longer in the business of investing in, in an sap or a BAN or a PeopleSoft, in, as was the case in the 90s we are moving into the world of amazon and salesforce and really picking and choosing the apps we need from a standard platform and i think that's the mentality that needs to engulf all of us in this space as well.
0: No, I love that idea. And I've even taken that approach in my day job. It's, you know, we're picking the best of breed application for each thing that we want to do. And whatever thing we pick definitely needs to have an API set so that we can plug it into whatever we want. Because as we're thinking of the customer journey, Um, And the user experience, we want the best experience for either our user or our customer. And sometimes having that big, huge, monolithic piece of software is is not the greatest tool, right? It's like having a Leatherman, um, you know, multi-tool. Does it have a pair of pliers? Does it have a knife? It has all that stuff, but it doesn't do any of those things great, right? It's not a great knife. It's not a pair of pliers. And and I agree that as technology has grown and, you know, Amazon and Google... Um, and Microsoft with Azure, their platform, giving people resources to to different cloud compute, um, you, know, you know, the chances are there that you don't have to buy multi-million dollar SAP or Oracle instances anymore. You're just buying best of breed and then using, you know, these different tools to to, you know, extract, transform, and load them into different systems in real time or, or through web hooks or something like that. So I think the way you're definitely thinking is the way stuff are going to be built in the future. Um, and I, you've even kind of seen SAP do it a little bit, right? Was, was there a product like HANA or something like that? Is there a cloud-based product where they're trying to do yes. open APIs? Everyone's trying to do what Salesforce did 10 years ago when they plugged everything in and said, you know what, we're just a CRM. You do anything you want with the data, put anything in here, take anything out. We don't care about that. Um, and, and I think that's the right approach that leaders should be looking at in the future going down the road, because that's where everything's going.
2: I completely agree with you, Nick. Absolutely.
0: So what are, what are some things, that, uh, some pitfalls you've seen of taking this approach, you know, as a leader? You know, if, if I'm a leader and I'm sitting here thinking of doing best of breed applications, what, what are some of the things I should be aware of?
2: So, you know, the primary pitfall, if I may call it, is the one where you might be seen as either one of two extremes, either being completely stupid and out of your mind, you know, for suggesting something that feels completely whacked out and impractical, or as someone that is kind of, uh, you know, prescribing a solution that others are not grasping. So, you know, you could be either seen as someone that kind of has no, is making no sense or making sense, but... Something that you know others are not, others in your organization are not really getting to, Uh, and as such, it is not uh, uh, tangibly uh, practicable. So I think either ways, and I think it's not just one. I mean, I know it's one pitfall or one problem, but it is a major one. I think so. Therefore, the major roadblock right now is one where one needs to literally jump over the hurdle of thinking differently, and I think that's very hard. That's one thing which I will agree has proved true. So before I came into the healthcare and insurance sector, one of the things that's often said is it's a very, uh, you know, antiquated uh Uh, industry from a technology standpoint, and even the minds that are inside this industry are ones that kind of take their time, you know, changing their minds. And I think while the first part of it is untrue, I think a lot of exciting things are happening. In fact, most of the innovation is occurring in these industries. I do feel that there is still the need to remove or ease off on some of the inertia that we still have on what's possible and what's not. You know, and in that sense, to me, that represents the biggest roadblock where in any such idea, any such uh, movement to the future or suggestions to the same, uh, it takes time to, evan- it's easy to evangelize. It's much more harder to get consensus on it. Uh, and that's, you know, and I think uh, that's part and parcel of the challenge. And as such, this is another thing that I keep talking to another colleague of mine, which is that, uh, yes, we are taking, to- technologists, pardon me, we are technologists for sure. We might think of ourselves as being creative innovators as well, but the most important job that we have right now is to be teachers and evangelists. And we need to really push the cause of what we are talking about in such an effective manner that you are telling people who will then go tell others on your behalf. And that is taking a lot of time as we speak.
1: Yeah, I think that's very well said, Ravi. The, you know, the whole, um, Orientation, I think, of digital leadership uh, being, you know, one component of knowing how to develop uh, not only business cases to move some of these ideas forward at an organization, especially one that's already got some resistance, uh, you know, to making those kinds of transformations, but then also understanding how do you bring along the entire culture with it? Because it's going to be transformative in in terms of how people work. Uh, and, and we all know how easy it is to make people change, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, there's, exactly. There's a lot of comfort uh, in familiarity. And so when you start to disrupt that, um, I think it's important that very early on, it's clear uh, to your workforce what the value of making those changes are. Uh, so I heard you speak a little bit to that from, um, from the perspective of uh, pitfalls, that there's, you know, there's already a lot of um, undoing things um, the way that they've traditionally been done. That's required, uh, you know, to, to start um, taking one step at a time, you know, up the new mountain that you need to climb uh, to achieve that digital transformation.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and you know what, we are all equally, I guess, uh, uh, responsible for that inertia that's set in the market, because it's not just about going in and going as a technology idea provider uh, and trying to change minds of the consumer. It's the opposite as well. Like, you know, as a case in point, if I were to say this, the traditional software selling model uh, in the industry has always been an annual license fee on a you know, either an enterprise model or on a per-user basis, and then you basically charge some services fee. And to me, one of the things that I consider disruptive is software should be free. What you charge for is the value of return of the investment into that software. So the software being free in itself allows you, as a provider of that software, to talk to a broker, talk to an insurer about saying that, while we are giving this for free, so we are collecting zero revenues from you using our software, you are hopefully getting some top line benefit or some bottom line profits by virtue of using our software. So what we would ask for is a cut off those commissions. So if it's a book of business that are getting managed that is getting managed via this, say digital broker platform, we will take X percent of that book of business versus charging you anything. And that, by the way, to you, Nick and I, seems like again, somewhat logical thinking that's proven to be a much harder topic for anyone to give me a pair of ears to. Or frankly, even if they hear me out on this, it's a lot harder for them to grasp or even kind of uh, take it further in their organization.
0: Yeah. I like that idea. I think I think as this younger generation comes in, you know, we got the, the Gen Z starting to come in. Um, they've kind of been exposed to this model just in using apps, right? There, there was the yes. light version of the app and if you wanted to get more access to more or get more coins, you, you paid a small amount to do it. Um, I, I've, I feel like just from my perspective, it's my opinion. I think you're on point with that's the way software is kind of going. I feel like the subscription thing is kind of getting worn out. Um, you know, now everyone has a subscription to everything from a software standpoint everything right. from, you know, your, your core financial systems to, you know, your Adobe products that you can even do a PDF and, and the things like that are just wearing out people. Um, Cause you know, they, especially from the accounting perspective, you went from everything being an OPEX to now, now it's, you know, I mean, from being a capital expense to an operating expense.
2: OPEX, yeah. It's just, yeah.
0: you know, it's just, that's right. it's changing. And, and like, like you said, I think that model that you're describing is something that's probably going to be big in, in the future as, as, you know, the millennials are, are starting to come up in leadership and Gen Z starting to come in um, because it's a model they're quite frankly familiar with already.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and you bring up a really good point. In fact, on that, I was recently reading a statistic which said that uh, 40% of small businesses in 2025 will be owned by millennials. And that's a staggering number, because it just, I mean, it represents a, the changing demographic of business leaders that, you know, we all, I mean, whoever is being a technology uh, provider will end up sitting across the table from that you know, that demographic, but also that represents a changing of a culture, a changing of a mindset, having the need for instant gratification that they have been used to over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, having, you know, being born and brought up in the era of Amazon and Apple, I think they will need that from us as business leaders. And therefore, we better kind of uh, be prepared to be able to service that kind of customer in the future.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's, uh, it's a model that I know Nick and I have talked about uh, over the years as well. It's, uh, it, it seems to be one that, you know, those of us who have been immersed in technology already, you know, we, we've seen uh, sort of that freemium kind of model um, really take effect. Uh, and another ancillary component to it, I think, is uh, when you put something in the hands of a user base and you don't charge them for it, uh, whether or not they, you know, end up becoming full-blown users or or licensed users uh, for those systems long-term, what you have done is you've created a lot of uh, brand recognition and brand loyalty uh, with your yes. products. You know, you you create uh, an association that um, you know there's there's some goodwill uh, that's actually behind uh, what's being developed and deployed uh, versus just uh, you know being in something to to make a buck.
2: You know that's such a great point, and in fact, uh, you know candidly, I had not thought of this before. But I was just thinking through this when you were describing that, Brian. Every person that gets their hands onto your software, which you are offering to them for free, is now your secondary salesperson. Uh, you know, he or she now has the power of social media. Uh, you know, basically, we live in a global village where, if something clicks with them, you know for sure that there is going to be a furthering of your value proposition beyond the extent of that one individual. And I think that's why it's extremely important for us to, I won't even call it compromise or sacrifice, but even if one were to call it, it's worth compromising on the short-term benefit of making $5 on a seat license and kind of reaping the rewards, which are probably going to be exponential in nature down the road.
1: Sure enough, now everyone just needs to figure out how to make a sustainable business model to get uh, your employees paid (laughs) between steps A and Z, right?
2: Exactly. Which goes back to Nick's earlier question around the pitfall. I think this is something which you know again seems common sense, but is probably the biggest roadblock on making sure that this is a sustainable, understood, you know, realizable model.
1: All right. So next step. What's uh, <laughs> what's the framework for making that possible? How much uh, how much thought have you put into that?
2: So uh, you know the thing is again, and I keep I will go back to the earlier conversation we had about things like you know no code or providing accelerators and frameworks. See, the good news is uh, we can take the industry we all uh, work in as an example. There are multiple variations of players. So, you know, even if you take brokers, you obviously have the really huge ones, the marshes, aeons of the world. I mean, again, they are tremendous, huge premium brands, but also somewhat monolithic, Like, right? So they, they are not in the sweet spot of the disruptive model we are talking about. And then you talk about the number of mid-sized players. To me, the sweet spot is when you look at the smaller brokers who A, just purely in terms of size and scale are, nim- are more nimble, more malleable and hopefully more collaborative to play ball with you so that's you know so that's as far as who are you targeting or who, where are you talking the second thing is that would also be the constituency that is probably least served by the premium uh, technology providers because the return on investment into servicing say a really small broker for a large preeminent industry leader software solution is not as much as if that industry leader software solution was servicing a really large broker as a client so that bottom rung and bottom not in a derogatory sense but purely from a size and scale sense that bottom rung of a broker is where I would probably focus on for new innovation new creativity disruptive ideas from both from a business model standpoint as well as for them to be the audience and consumer base for disruptive technology players. So again, going back to the no-code thing, if I were a uh, you know a no-code software seller, I would go to the smaller broker players and talk to them, saying, "We are almost collaborators here. I'm not a vendor who's selling to you as a uh, as a consumer. Let's be collaborators. Let's kind of quote-unquote build this together or deploy this together. You're not paying anything to build it. I'm not charging you." for what you know what it cost me to build it it is no code it is kind of readily pluggable but hey by the oh, by the way for any book of business that gets transacted through this you know do me a favor and let's be partners let's kind of see how we can cut it and i think that conversation again can happen in a lot more collaborative way at that small broker uh, segment who's hopefully or who's probably looking at uh, business owner policy or small business insurance as their core product line that they're servicing their customers. I think it gets a lot more challenging when we're talking about more complex, more larger commercial book of business. I think for a smaller, more linear streamlined books of business, I think it's a lot easier.
1: And I think that can probably be said, you know, across many different industry types uh, as well. You know, obviously the, yeah. uh, the smaller, more streamlined uh, sort of requirements around your business, the the easier for that um, sort of model, I think to, to be actualized.
2: Yeah. I mean, and again, if I may just take another minute, you're absolutely right. If you were to transpose that exact framework or storyboard and talk about hospital or healthcare providers, again, to me, for any kind of new disruptive technology, the audience probably should be the rural community hospitals, you know, single, single instance, single premise hospitals, which kind of, you know, are not there in terms of adopting the latest and greatest of technology. Also, their line of governments and authority is very linear. It is restricted within the confines of that single location. So, you know, you can be collaborators with them. The minute you go to the you know, the the really large national, uh, uh, you know, provider plans or academic medical centers, you then kind of, A, you have to run through the gamut of decision making in order to get even an idea discussed. And the second thing is they are probably trying a few different things anyways. So again, in every industry, in any sense, when we talk about the kind of things we're discussing here, I think it's important for us to start from the bottom, scale and size wise, and then move up the top.
1: Yeah, I think that can be said, you know, even in terms of internal uh, innovation practices, right? I mean, typically your best innovators are the ones that are actually sitting at the desk doing the work. Uh, They're the ones who are on the front lines of uh, clearly identifying what the challenges are with uh, any given system or any given process that, uh, you know, you might already have in place. Uh, Once you move up the management ranks, uh, you tend to start, Having blind spots, uh, you know, around those things that are uh, actually inhibitors for your work. So, um, you know, really translating that into how do you start to sort of harvest some of those innovative ideas, uh, you know, from. From the trenches, so to speak, uh, and then bring that forward into evolving uh, your organization's own digital practice. You know, I think it's uh, it's it's a, a good approach, uh, regardless of what type of business you're in. Particularly if you're trying to, you know, bootstrap something on a on a small budget. Completely agree with you.
2: That's very well said, Brian. Totally agree.
1: So what's next in terms of digital platforms if, if, you know, Salesforce and Dynamics and Amazon and Google have all been, you know, kind of the, uh, the leaders in what this looks like, um, you know, how is that going to continue to translate into business aspect, uh, impact rather for, um, other software developers? And then what's kind of the future role of the consumer in all of this?
2: So, I think the consumer holds center stage moving forward. I mean, if I were to again keep uh, this response abbreviated, I would say that I see the future in any professional environment as no different from how uh, you, Nick or I, use our uh, you know iPhones, or if you are you know, on the Android side of things, uh, 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 a Samsung Galaxy, wherein we swipe. Keep swiping till we find the app we need to click on, click on it and access it. And I think that that ought to be the template for anyone thinking of providing solutions at a business or a professional level. So we need to make things as easy as that. When you talk about the wherewithal or the infrastructure or the capabilities of who can do that, obviously it will need a collaborative ecosystem. But to me, that's where for anyone that is a software player in this sector, the threat's are the Amazons or the Salesforces, or even Facebook and Googles of the world who, if they decide to focus on this, I think they could accomplish it uh, to be the one stop, you know, uh, for, for all of these needs. And I think that without any hesitation, I can um, uh, hazard that guess that I see that in the future where you will have the consumerization of professional applications Uh, professional and digital technologies uh, literally through swipes and uh, clicks of the thumb uh, without having to, you know, do unique logins and IDs and multiple authorizations. And uh, we are still kind of in that uh, fairly uh, laborious world. And I think that is going to change and change very rapidly down the road.
0: No, I really, I really like that. And I I was, um, I think it was at an event, you know, sometime last year in October and I got asked what, the biggest technology change is coming that I think. And to me, it's not even a technology. Um, like, like you said, these these smaller players, as things get consumerized and the big players want to get into different markets. I think the way you can dif- differenti- differentiate yourself is just through having outstanding customer service. If yes. you think of something like Zappos, when they spun up, they were much smaller than Amazon. And they were literally running around town and buying shoes and then shipping them off. But what gave them that fanatical support is that somebody could call them 24 hours a day, talk to a real person right away, and they would stay on the phone with you until they helped. So I feel like, you know, that that customer experience as things get consumerized, that that customer experience, being able to get a hold of a real person and not just talk to an AI bot is going to be one of those things that can set those smaller players completely apart where you say, hey, you know, I know you can go buy, you know, this product from Amazon or, or Salesforce or whatever, and they're going to iterate four or five times a year. But you know, here I'm smaller. Here's my phone number. You can call me anytime you need something. And sometimes things like that in my, in my opinion um, are, yeah. are the things that can help differentiate you going, going forward. And um, you know, I, that was just running through my head as you, as you were talking about that. And I was like, you know, you're that smaller player, you have that innovation and then you have that ability to reach out and actually touch that customer or, or end user.
2: Yeah, very well said, Nick. And in fact, that whole uh, piece or concept around uh, customer service and customer delight and how it increasingly needs to be more and more personalized. I think I completely agree with you that that holds the keys to future success. And there also, I have kind of two prongs or two ways of or two things which one has to consider. One is, as you said, really being there as someone who's a trusted advocate. So, you know, it's no not a chat bot, but someone that you're talking to and someone who within that one call or one interaction can solve your issue. As a consumer, I think that would, that is what would delight me. The second thing is personalization at a customer service, you uh, know, context at a point where you're designing products or designing solutions or designing offerings, which are personalized to that particular user. It's not just about customer service, it's personalization at the product or the service design uh, level itself. Taking an example, again, in our insurance uh, world, uh, in the last few years, there has been a huge uh, thrust into on-demand insurance, right? So to me, that is something that is going to continue to expand where we are not talking about, again, an annuity-based, again, very pedantic insurance product, which is renewed every year or every uh, you know six months. We could actually desire and more and more adopt insurance that is uh, incidental or for a specific purpose and that specific event could last maybe two hours like if i'm going on a skiing trip to tahoe i just want to ensure my uh, skiing equipment just for the duration of my trip i don't want it before and after so that's just one random example but so to me things like that how do i personalize my interaction with my consumer uh, not only when they have an issue but even when they don't have an issue my products are designed in a way that particular individual will love what I'm offering them is where I think we're moving towards.
1: Taking the microservices model to the uh, microeconomics of <laughs> consumer Indeed. behaviors, right? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely,
2: <laughs> absolutely.
1: That's great. Well, Ravi, we've, we've discussed a lot today. It's been, uh, you know, fascinating uh, hearing your insights on so many of these topics. Um, a question that we we always ask all of our guests are, what is a uh, source of media or a book that has been uh, an inspiration to you uh, in your career trajectory as you've uh, sort of gone up the ranks of leadership? Do you have one thing you can cite
2: Yes, yes. In fact, uh, I was thinking of this, uh, you know, in a in an uh, in an entirely uh, different conversation recently, and I realized that the book. And I'm sorry for giving this book as my as my answer, but the book that really shaped what I have said today, or what I've been thinking of, is. A book written by a senior NBA writer for, uh, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, his name is Jack McCullum, And he wrote a book on the 2005-2006 Phoenix Suns. And the book was called Seven Seconds or Less. It's basically uh, tracing the, the style of play that the Phoenix Suns of that era introduced, which was, yes, you have 24 seconds on the short clock. But the coach, Mike D'Antoni, who now coaches the Rockets, his uh, dictum was, that's what our opposition thinks we have. They think we have 24 seconds to set up a play and get a shot off. So we need to make sure the defense thinks that they need to make sure that they can hold us off you know, until 24 seconds and prevent us from getting a good shot. And his dictum was we need to take a shot within seven seconds because that's when the defense is least prepared for us to be aggressive. And again, to the points that we have discussed earlier today, to me, that represents a perfect example of going way beyond what the traditional model is. In this case, it's not a business model. It's a sports philosophy. It's the concept of game plan in the sport of basketball and kind of completely disrupting is disrupting it and trying something totally different. Now, many secondary derivatives came out of it. Things like if you need to shoot within seven seconds, you need to have good three-point shooters who can kind of... Uh, You know, stay out on the perimeter, be ready to receive the ball, and you need the right players. And he got Steve Nash to play for him. All of that are kind of in the nitty gritties. But to me, that book really made me rethink what I do on a day to day basis. Like, you know, how do I completely re envision basic essentials of activities that I partake in life? And can I think of a radically different way of thinking through it? And typically, there are a lot of business books written on this. But to me, sometimes they end up being very pedantic, very theoretical, very kind of you know academic in nature. Here was an example from a sport that you watch on the television or live in person day in and day out. And there, right in front of you, there is someone who's showing you that it can be done in a sporting activity as well. So that's a book that I, frankly, I love reading it. Uh, also being a Suns fan, I love reading it anyways. But to me, that had vast, a more uh, uh, cogent, deeper uh, learning for me than just, you know, reading it as a sports book. I,
0: I love recommend. that recommendation. Yeah. And w- one of my favorite sports books is um, it's called The Game by Ken Dryden. And yes. I don't know if you're familiar with hockey at all, but he was part of, you know, that Montreal Canadiens team, you know, that yes, won yes, a bunch of, of championships in a row. And he just talks through, you know, the pressure of them to constantly repeat every time and, and kind of the toll it took on them and their teammates and, yeah. So, so for me, I love reading things that are out of like the technology genre or just something else to get different perspectives. That's a great recommendation. I'm gonna have to pick that one up.
1: <laughs> Thank I, you. No, absolutely. I, I can tell you right now, with my uh, my son's uh, additional uh, time for spring break that he's been allotted. <laughs> <laughs> Being a basketball <laughs> player and a huge fan, uh, I think I, I just found a way to help keep him occupied for uh, <laughs> probably a solid week of his extended spring break.
2: Well, that's great to hear. By the way, completely off topic, I'm thrilled to hear what you just said, Brian. Because as I alluded to earlier, I have two boys, 14 and 12. It's 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 hard for me to get them to read. Uh, in some ways, it's become the characteristic of this new generation. They don't have time. Uh, you know, not they have time but they don't think they have the time to read a book. And I think right. that's blasphemous to me. So really <laughs>
0: thrilled to hear you. Hey, these are audio books. You can, you can listen <laughs> to them at 1.5 speed. You can even <laughs> load them on a idea.
1: tablet and swipe them, you know. If you've got to have the swiping uh, activity as part of your reading, then, you know, you've you still got that option as well. <laughs>
0: True, true. <laughs> I think when I was 14 and 16, I wasn't reading anything either. So. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're right.
2: And I think then you fall into that uh, trap of becoming, you know, one of those, uh, the dad, right? Like, hey, in our days, we used to do this and we didn't. And I guess it is, is important for us not to get into the trap. But at the same time, some of these things uh, feel like uh, completely uh, against the grain of what they should be doing.
1: Well, there you go. There's a way to sell it to them. Right. You know, how, yeah. do, how do you set yourself apart? You know, be a book reader. It'll be so exactly. different that people are like, Whoa, man, did you <laughs> see that book reader? <laughs>
2: <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> and and only positive can come out of it. You'll always learn something new with any book.
1: Amen to that. It exercises your brain in a way that's different than just staring at words on a screen. That's for sure. Without a doubt. That's well said. Ravi, where can people best find you if they're looking for you?
2: So I am, you know, obviously I have, uh, uh, you know, I'm available on uh, LinkedIn um, uh, under Ravi Krishnan. Uh, I also have a, uh, what I call a secret Twitter site, which doesn't uh, have my name, uh, Twitter account, but I call it Masala ESPN. And as you can imagine, being from India, Masala is a big deal. I think of myself as being a very, huge sports aficionado, so therefore the espn part so i can be found on masala espn as well
0: <laughs> very cool i love it
1: well thank you very much for taking the time to join us today it's been enlightening conversation and, and it's always good to catch up with you
2: thank you so much brian uh thanks nick uh, pleasure again meeting you nick brian, uh, brian it's always a pleasure talking to you and most importantly thank you for having me on this podcast all right we appreciate it ravi thank you thanks again